get the next 10 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £1. There's no commitment and you can cancel at any time. But hurry, because this offer runs for a week only. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash sale. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by James Forsyth and Fraser Nelson. King Charles III has promised to follow the late Queen's selfless duty in his first address to both Houses of Parliament as a monarch this morning. James, what did we learn? So the new king came to uh, to say thank you to both houses for uh, the humble addresses they had sent expressing grief on, on, on the death of his mother, the Queen. He paid tribute to the role that Parliament plays in our democracy. And it was another example of the kind of the peaceful and orderly constitutional succession. He now goes to Scotland, where the Queen's body is resting, where he will attend a service at St. Giles' Cathedral and see Nicola Sturgeon, the First Minister of Scotland. And I think that we will see then before the Queen's body is brought to London tomorrow, where it will lie in state here. And Fraser, when it comes to the Queen's body lying in state, what are we expecting in terms of the numbers coming to pay tribute, the, the plans that are in place? It will be extraordinary. There's already um, talk of like obviously hundreds of thousands of people coming to do it. Um, if I get the chance, for example, I'd certainly go there with my kids. But if you have to queue all day, as I imagine you would do, that might be rather rather difficult. We saw, I mean, even for the Queen Mother, um, not so long ago, we had um, hundreds of thousands of people um, come in. So it will be even more for the Queen. I think it's a shame, actually, that the plan A of the Royal Train going from Edinburgh to London isn't going ahead, because had it gone ahead, people would find a way to pay tribute by simply coming up just to watch it pass. We saw that when Robert Kennedy was um, killed, his body was taken from um, New York to D.C., and that very slow train journey, you had something like two million Americans came by to watch it pass and pay their respects. It was a sort of magic when it comes to seeing the relationship between the monarch and a country. And people do feel the need to come and pay their respects in some small way. It might seem crazy, it might seem illogical, some people might laugh at it, but there is this this quite sincere need. I would personally have liked a method for those who can't come to London to be able to do it in that way. But we are going to certainly see this start on Wednesday, just shortly before where King Charles was speaking right now in Westminster Hall. I've actually stood in that part where he was standing many times ago. It's a beautiful hall, Westminster Hall. And when the House of Commons was bombed in the war, they did their best to save this medieval hall where so much of our history has taken place, where Warren Hastings was tried. In fact, just a few feet from where King Charles III was speaking, King Charles I was condemned to death. And there's a bronze plaque in Westminster Hall reminding you of all of these incredible things that have happened in British history. Uh, when I was working in the House of Commons, walking through that hall gave me shivers every time I did it. And I really hope that as many people as are allowed can can come through there to see not just um, the Queen's um, coffin and the lying in state, but the magic of this incredible building, which is resonant with so much of England's history. James, where is politics in all this? Because ultimately... Uh the day-to-day politics has been suspended. There were some briefings at the weekend that Liz Truss would be going on tour with the new king, but they were quickly 
retractor there's an effort to correct saying she's definitely not going on tour she's not even accompanying in certain ways she's just attending the events that she would have to so what is the role in all this they were very quick to clarify after it was reported by the bbc and the sunday times that she would be kind of accompanying him prince charles on tour but you know she will not be kind of going on walkabout with him or anything like that rather it will she will just be attending the memorial services in the different parts of the United Kingdom, which obviously, given that she, she is the, the Prime Minister, is, is constitutionally proper. I think, though, the interest in this sums up the fact that we have, for the first time in the democratic era, since um, you have a new Prime Minister and a new King at the, and a new monarch at the same time. And obviously that, that will have an, an influence and it will affect the nature of their relationship if you think back to queen elizabeth you know her first queen elizabeth ii her first prime minister was winston churchill who obviously was so much older than her king charles is obviously considerably older than liz truss but has been doing the job for just a shorter period of this current job that he is for just a shorter period of time i thought it was very interesting actually what, what you know what david cameron said on sunday about how when he was Prince of Wales, Charles had been practising holding weekly audiences with the Prime Minister to kind of get used to the feel of it. So I think that, you know, he was, I think mean, this is also a point that Charles Moore made on Spectator TV this week, that, you know, that, that, you know even though he has only been king for a matter of days, King Charles is probably the person in the world at the moment with the most experience of public affairs in that he has been playing a diplomatic role and a role in the governance of a country since his 20s. When I saw the news, actually, of that Liz Truss would be accompanying King Charles, it did make me think that of the two of them, she's acting more regally than he is right now. Um, in terms of if she's actually, if you look at her behaviour so far, there has been very few days of this and it's far too early to see a trend. That you know, the way that she sort of um, didn't really allow proper debate for the energy announcements on Monday, the way that their, her point, her government now is just dispensing with the services of permanent secretaries. I mean, Prince Charles is the one who's following parliamentary protocol, coming to the houses, convening them, etc. I do wonder if uh, Liz Truss is going to be a little bit more of a, uh, if, of a queen Liz. Um, by, the, I, I, by the way, you know, um, I ought not to speculate too much in a few days, but so far... We've had quite a few things which haven't been discussed because we've been just preoccupied with the Queen's passing and everything that entails from that. But if we were to have a podcast devoted to politics, I think we'd have quite a lot to say about the fact that um, that Liz Truss has just passed one of the biggest, most financially expensive moves in post-war British history in a way that didn't really lend itself much to democratic scrutiny. Scrutiny has been suspended um, because, to my mind wrongly, Parliament's been suspended for five days. King Charles was quite right to say that Parliament is the beating heart of the nation, and we need that beating heart right now. There's lots going on. There's lots to discuss, lots to scrutinise, lots of mistakes to hopefully spot with the right scrutiny. And yet, the few days we've had of Truss's premiership have demonstrated how easy it is for a Prime Minister to dispense with traditions like a permanent civil service and even um, holding proper debates rather than statements when you're announcing big decisions to Parliament. And just before we move on to other topics, James, when it comes to the state funeral, the date's now set for Monday. What are we expecting in terms of world leaders? Joe Biden has suggested he will attend. Yes, um, I, and I think I think there will be I, I think there will be no no shortage of world leaders present. I think you know that she has on the throne for such a long time, and I think is such a respected figure. But I think you will see just an almost unparalleled number of world leaders 
wishing to turn up to this event and to pay their respects. I think there also is a uh, it is worth remembering here that because you know the, 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 the Joe Biden, you know, he is the head of state of the United States. You know, she has known. I think I think almost a quarter of the presidents in American history. So I think there I think there is a desire to show respect for that reason. Now, Fraser, when it comes to the papers over the weekend, clearly the, the main focus has been the passing of the Queen, but there has also been developments when it comes to Ukraine. Can you bring us up to speed? In the last few days, Ukraine has pulled off what some military analysts are calling the most successful counteroffensive since the end of the Second World War. The Russians were surprised enough when the Ukrainians went after them in the south, and they were so freaked out that they started to move lots of Russian tools and machinery and men down to the south to help fight off that Ukrainian counteroffensive. Nobody thought that the Ukrainians had enough men and kits to make a second offensive in the north, but that's exactly what's happened. Now, um, Svetlana Mernets, our, um, um, our former intern, now she's working with us uh, reporting on Ukraine, was telling me this morning how the troops have, have reached the border with Russia. They've um, captured something like 3,000 square kilometres of land, and it now looks as if Russian troops are being defeated on the ground. And of course, this isn't simply by Ukrainian soldiers with higher morale, though that's part of it, but they've also got vastly superior kit now. They've got these um, HIMAR American missiles, they've got drones, they've got a whole suite of Western technology, which they're using incredibly effectively to penetrate and sweep away what seems to be a veil of a Russian defence in the north. Now, according to Svetlana, what's going to happen now is, the word in Ukraine, is that Putin's going to um, retaliate and not so much by sending his troops to try to reclaim the territory, but by simply taking out Ukrainian power. So if he does that, then you'll be able to have Ukrainians um, freezing in winter. She was saying that lots of her friends back in Ukraine were buying electric stoves to try to keep them warm, but the gas was going to run out. But if there's no electricity either, then you can use the cold in a ver- as a very effective weapon in a country where the temperature hits minus 25 degrees. So we are facing just you know, scenes that nobody ever thought would be possible. At the start of this, people gave Ukraine days to survive. Now it seems that they are pulling off success. And when we wait to see which net, what cards Putin is now going to play, taking out Ukrainian power supplies would be one of them. But he also, there is his nuclear arsenal. And lots of very important questions there about to what extent, if any, he'd be prepared to dip into that. James, do you think we're at a turning point? Certainly, this defies all of the predictions about the war. The, the idea was that the war would turn into a, a war of attrition, artillery bombardments being exchanged, and you know the, the, the front line wasn't going to move very much. The Ukrainians are claiming to have moved a, a, a huge distance uh, in a very short period of time. And they've also pulled off, it appears, an offensive combined arms operation, which is about the most difficult military thing to do. Now, of course, as Fraser says, the question now is, how do the Russians respond? You've seen them trying to take out civilian infrastructure quite blatantly. And what does that mean? But I think one of the things it does, it does do, is it slightly changes some of the diplomatic conversation, which is what Zelensky is trying to say. What I think is, we knew that Zelensky wanted to make some progress before the winter came. And basically, the war is going to be frozen at that point for, for several months because the conditions will be so inhospitable to fighting. And what Zelensky wants to do was to show his Western supporters that they can make progress. And therefore, don't, don't think that we should enter into a negotiation because we are capable of reclaiming this territory. And I think he has made that point quite 
strongly for this, 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 this Ukrainian offensive. I think it also, from, again, all this is hard to verify through the fog of war, but also it does suggest that the, the, the morale and the discipline of the Russian forces in Ukraine is relatively low. The Ukrainians are talking about up and finding, you know, canteens of food left, you know, people kind of literally fleeing their dinner plates and heading off, arms were left there and the like. Svilana was telling me that the joke in Ukrainian <laughs> social media right now is that Russia has just become the biggest donor of weaponized machinery to Ukraine's army because of the amount they're just leaving there. And it's really quite staggering to see the the rapidity of the Russian retreat, but also the kit they're leaving behind. And and the, the Ukrainians are now capturing two sorts of people, Russian soldiers, and they're putting out videos about how these soldiers are saying that they had no idea what was going on, very demoralized. They're also capturing Ukrainians who had been collaborating with the Russian occupying forces. Now, this is going to be, obviously, a new problem, which comes part and parcel of reclaiming territories. What will Ukraine do with the Ukrainians who were working with Russia. Now, obviously, under Ukrainian law, it's an offence to do this. How will they treat this? So right now, these will be difficult questions for Zelensky, because there's so much he's saying, which is consistent with getting Western support. But what Westerners do not like, and I certainly I don't like it myself, is to see all of these laws being passed in Ukraine, which would appear to undermine the rights of Russian-speaking minorities, to erase Russian culture in the same way that Russians have been erasing Iranian, uh, Ukrainian culture. And also the difficult thing is what you do with Ukrainians who found themselves forced at gunpoint to stay in whatever public service jobs they had. What about teachers who right now are going back to school to teach Ukrainian kids under Russian occupation? It's a very difficult dilemma here and one the Ukrainians will be facing head on. And just finally, Fraser, we've also had the Swedish elections and the result is not yet clear. But can you bring us up to speed of how things are shaping up? It seems that there's going to be a change of government in Sweden, that there's going to be a conservative prime minister. This in Swedish elections is very, very rare. Almost every single election is won by the left-leaning social democrats. But here, Ulf Christensen, who's head of the um, the moderate party, effectively the Conservatives, looks like he is, by a tiny majority, going to lead a coalition which is bigger than the um, the Red-Green coalition. So Sweden's elections are funny. I mean, the, the voting, I think 95% of the votes have been cast. You've still got the overseas votes coming in. The last time you had weeks of negotiations. But the big change now is that the Sweden Democrats, who had been seen to be beyond the pale last time around, this is a, a populist and upstart party, and one which they used to describe as neo-fascist and far-right. But enough time has passed to make it impossible to use those labels now, well with much credibility. You've seen the Sweden Democrat members hold power in local authorities, they've been under parliamentary scrutiny for years, they're now part and parcel of the Sweden national debate. You might not like them, I certainly don't, but it's difficult to describe them as beyond the pale, or fascist, or far-right, or whatever. For that reason, they've now become seen to be compatible with the Conservatives in a block of votes. And for that reason, it seems that a Conservative leader who got far fewer votes than his Social Democrat counterpart is about to become Prime Minister. In fact, it seems that um, Ulf Christensen's party was third, that the Sweden Democrats, the junior party in his coalition, got more votes than him, 
and the soon-to-be-ousted Social Democrat Prime Minister got 30% of the votes, um, 10 points more than either of her right-wing opponents. But the coalition system looks right now as if it's going to put Sweden into the hands of a centre-right government in the same way that Italians are expected to pass power to a centre-right bloc in about two weeks' time. And just one more thing, for those regular listeners, you may have been, uh, you know, have had to actually bear witness to our coffee appeal. Eventually, of course, we'll learn to fund our own coffee habit. But a special thank you to one of our regular listeners who kindly dropped off a whole collection of Monmouth coffee, freshly ground. And today we tried the Colombian. It was delicious. I'd never heard of it before, but I'll certainly be buying more of this Monmouth coffee. It's um, fantastic. It's very nice indeed. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, listeners. We um, are forever in your debt.